0: Hi, thanks for tuning in to episode 15 of Innovation Activists, Designing Healthcare's Future. I'm Reid Omri, and this month I'm excited to be sitting down with Dr. Andrew Ibrahim. Andrew is a polymath. He's a surgeon at the University of Michigan and chief medical officer at HOK, which is a global design, architecture, engineering, and planning firm. He also serves on the design and health leadership group at the American Institute of Architects, and is a technical advisor to the LeapFrog Group. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. You've got so much on your plate. Can you share a story with us from your childhood that may have sparked your interest in the career that you have now developed? Great read, well, it's really great to be here.
1: Thanks so much for having me while I'm in town. You know, my earliest childhood memory is doing my homework as fast as I could, turning the paper over, and then starting to draw cities. And I was fascinated by the challenge of Well, where do you put uh, the police stations and where do you put the schools and how much residential do you need? And for whatever reason, I was that third grader who was doing that. As I got older, I was very drawn to healthcare, largely because my older brother, who I was very close to, was involved in that and started to think, well, where does the overlap of city planning and architecture interface with healthcare? And maybe not to surprise, there weren't many mentors who said, yeah, of course, training in architecture and medicine is a no brainer. My parents, I loved them dearly, didn't love the idea of training in both, but they said get into med school and then do whatever you want. So I did, I got into med school, I was the nerdy kid who did all the summer classes, got into med school when I was 20 and decided I probably wasn't ready to start medical school. So I deferred, moved to London and studied architecture at the Bartlett. More so I think to grow up at the time, but it turns out it kind of changed my entire worldview of how I understood healthcare after that.
0: What an amazing story. Your upbringing is from parents who say, you know, the architecture thing's okay, but really you should go into medicine. Is that right? Yeah, I think,
1: you know, there was a New York Times article about a year ago that said, you know, like the worst degree to have for job security is, like, architecture. And my parents saw that and kind of chuckled and, see, see we, like, steered you the right way to go into medicine. Neither of my parents are physicians. Neither of them are architects. I don't think they knew too much about either, but kind of just wanted to give me the best advice they thought they could at the time between the two. And I never really saw them as mutually exclusive. I always tried to keep my foot in both and thought I could try to do both eventually. And turns out it's working
0: out. Now, as a third grader scribbling on the back, of a, of a sheet of paper at the back of your homework with images. You're clearly very visually drawn. Where did that come from?
1: Great observation. I'm not entirely sure. My father was an engineer and still is an engineer. So I think I was maybe very spatially oriented in that way from hanging out with him. My older brother was certainly very artistic. So maybe that's where it blended, but I don't know that I can pinpoint or locate it, but it certainly made much more sense to me to organize things visually than in text which became the precursor for visual abstracts not to go down that rabbit hole too long But I got really excited in my research work to try to make two or three visual slides That represented the whole idea what I was working on as opposed to writing a couple thousand words So it started to become more clear as I moved further along professionally that Translating my ideas into a visual format is really something I'm passionate about.
0: When you go to a talk and you see slides that have only words on them that require a magnifying glass or a telescope to actually read, do you have an allergic reaction? Yeah, I get very frustrated and not not maybe for the obvious reason.
1: I get frustrated because there's really good science in there. There's really good information. And what a letdown for everyone else that it's so hard to find what's important. You literally have the expert of that content right there talking to you and you can't understand what they want to communicate and there's probably things that would make healthcare better the world better society better if we could only get to those ideas more clearly so i get frustrated mostly things have gotten much more visual recently and ideas are disseminating a lot faster and i think that's going to be collectively for the good
0: Well, being here with a radiologist, I think you can see that we are aligned on that. I'm also very much a visual learner. I have found that if I can't draw a schematic, I don't really understand what's going on. How is that for you? That's a good way to orient. I remember in medical school,
1: you know, they always warned you the first week. It's like drinking from a fire hydrant. And sure enough, I got super overwhelmed. They said, I can't read three books in a week. I've never done that before. It's just too much information. And, you know, you try to put all this dense information line after line into your notes. I had no idea how to put anything together. And at some point I realized, look, there's no way I'm going to read page to page all these books. What if I just start with a table of contents of each book and just figure out how these themes are related? And so it did kind of start like a schematic of just organizing general concepts. And I said, look, there's no way I'm going to study all 30 of these topics. Let me just start with the five that I think sound cool. And you kind of fill those in, and then all of a sudden, making the connections over a couple weeks makes a lot more sense. But I think being able to do an overall simple schematic turned out to be a necessary learning tool for me that really hit me in medical school. turns out that tends to be the framework for visual abstract, is what's your overarching, simple narrative that you can get your head around. You can fill in the details later, but if you can't get that initial framework more broadly down, it's much harder to fill in the details.
0: Can you describe a little bit more about Visual Abstract for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So Visual Abstracts was an idea
1: that I owe a lot of credit to my mentor, Justin Dimick at the University of Michigan. He was my research mentor and a personal mentor for a long time. And he said, Andrew, you spend so much time on your slides, and they are so compelling in how they communicate the information you want to talk about. I'm involved in this journal called Annals of Surgery. It's the leading journal in our academic surgery world. Would you be interested in helping out with our social media account? And I said, you know, I don't really know what I have to offer. I'm a first-year research fellow. My Twitter account is barely active. I said, I I don't know how I can help. But, you know, when your mentor asks you to do something multiple times, you appreciate that they have wisdom that you don't totally understand, so you agree to do it. Uh, And I took over that Twitter account, and there was a paper that had come out from London about a coordinated trauma system in the city of London. Now, I had lived in London before, and I read that paper, and I said, how is it possible that a city as large as London doesn't have a coordinated trauma network. Some of the world's most famous hospitals, most brilliant minds, and there's no coordination in a city of eight million people. So I said, yeah, give me that social media account. I'll take it over. So I tweet out this paper. Annals of Surgery has tons of followers, and I'm like, I'm gonna get the word out. Everyone's gonna be really realize how important it is to have a coordinated trauma system in a major metropolitan city. And I think the first time I tweeted it, it maybe got like eight retweets. 20 people clicked on the link to read the article, and I was just so discouraged, and I said, how's that possible, Like this work is so important? So that became the birth of the visual abstract. I thought, well, if I was presenting this at a meeting, what would my first slide be? And I created what turned out to be the first visual abstract of this paper, and I think in the first week it got seen like 30,000 times. And it sort of became clear that if you could communicate important information in a visual format it has real value to disseminate important work.
0: What a great story. Where do you see some of the similarities between architecture and healthcare? Where do you see some overlap where really the thinking in one might benefit the other?
1: On a personal level, so I I was drawn to surgery pretty early in medical school for the reasons that it's very tangible and concrete. At the end of the day, you can physically see something that you changed and it has long-term consequences or benefits that you are responsible for. And I was drawn to that, and I was drawn to the personalities who were willing to take on that responsibility, who turned out to be my mentors. And turns out that's the same thing that excites me about architecture. I remember being in studio in London, and oftentimes they just walk you through the city of London and say, you know, Reed, what do you think of this building? And you say, oh, it's beautiful. They're like, no, I mean, I know we're in zone one London, but what do you really think of it? And they teach you how to critique these buildings, and you realize even a small design decision is, the width of a sidewalk, where you place a doorway, how many windows you place, have enormous consequences for these buildings that may stay around for decades or hundreds of years. And so all of a sudden I realized that same idea of a physical tangible result with long-term impact for better or worse, kind of selected for the same personality. So surgery and architecture to me actually are very similar in that way. What I think's become more clear to healthcare today Architecture historically, the architect was really the center of the ship for these huge construction projects managing multiple stakeholders, and that's still true now. And I think when you talk to any physician today, and I think you're a good example, you are now accountable to multiple stakeholders. It's not the case that you're in a small group with a couple partners and you have one insurance group that you bill to. You're billing to five different insurers. You have three different dean administrators you're talking to. You have two or three patient advocacy groups that want to talk to you. You have a group of colleagues in different institutes. And all of a sudden, the skill set of managing multiple stakeholders is not only an advantage, it's essential, or you won't thrive in healthcare, And that's really kind of, I think, in the sweet spot of most
0: architects. Do you think architecture as a whole has underappreciated its role in promoting health? Yes
1: in the history of architecture the first kind of documented canons of architecture are all the way from ancient rome and marcus vitruvius very explicitly says a core competency of being an architect should be to understand medicine and health or how could you know if what and where you're going to build is going to have a good health impact on the people who occupy that space we know vitruvius for the famous da vinci vitruvius man but that was really vitruvius idea that good design and architecture should mimic the human body. Health and architecture has always historically been linked, and I think it's fallen off the radar for a number of reasons, but we're in a real opportunity now for architects to really be frontline stakeholders in health. I was surprised a couple years ago, CMS came out with an alternative payment model for accountable health communities, essentially trying to understand what are all the built environment variables housing access to food transportation safety that impact people's health and it was done by brilliant people and missing from the table architects and i said how is it that architecture as a profession has not been able to put itself right in the middle so our work at the american institute of architects has largely been how do you build some more common ground between architects and clinicians part of it is just understanding a little bit more of our history and realizing Healthcare is not that foreign to us, population health is not that foreign to architects. This is actually in our history, and with training us a little bit differently, uh, there's a real opportunity to put architects right in the middle of things again.
0: I think one of the greatest opportunities for practical health is to design communities where people can go out for walks. I mean, I'm a huge fan of walking. It's an opportunity for Nashville because so many of our neighborhoods within Nashville don't have sidewalks. It's like mystifying to me. And in fact, with my young kids, although my neighborhood has sidewalks, which was the reason that we chose to live there, there's parts of my neighborhood where the middle of the sidewalk literally has the telephone pole I love when my eight-year-olds make fun of the designers, the urban planners. Like, who would actually in their right mind place a utility pole right in the middle of a sidewalk? These seem so obvious, yet it's really still uncommon. And do you see this notion of urban planning in starting to recognize what are the ways that we can promote health?
1: Yeah, so I'll say two things on that, one,
0: we, are
1: getting a much deeper understanding and real evidence of the impact of the built environment on health. So JAMA in the last two years, you know, this is our go-to mainstream medical journal for randomized clinical trials, new oncology drugs, new operations, long-term outcomes, have published multiple papers now on city walkability. In Ontario, they measured the neighborhood walkability scores across all of Ontario and then measured rates of, I think it was diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular disease, and found that sure enough, if you live in a more walkable neighborhood, over time being in a walkable neighborhood is associated with lower rates of all three. To see that published in JAMA to me is such a signal that one, we have better evidence to get through the reviewers of JAMA to say there's some real credible links and relationships and associations we should understand is a signal to me that insurers and medical communities are going to pay much more attention to the built environment from the architecture side you know what you pointed out happens so frequently and what it says to me is who is at the table at the beginning of the design sure in retrospect everybody can look back and say gosh there's five things we could have changed but what if health was a priority at the beginning of the design, and you had somebody at the table at day one when you were still in your strategy phase to say, you know, we could build here, we could build here, we could go to this scale or that scale, but if health was also a priority, all other things being equal, does that tip the scale about which one you should do? We launched an effort just a couple weeks ago called Health in All Design, uh, which was really born out of lessons I've seen within architecture just in the last year that everything we build and design has an opportunity to influence health if you consider it at the start it's really hard to go back and say we just built a three billion dollar stadium we want to use that as a public health intervention let's get more people in the stadium on non-game days to use it as a public space it's really challenging to do and it's a lot of money if you plan that before the building's ever built there are small modifications you can make that can make a lot of that building accessible and multi-purpose that if you plan it ahead of time may not change the cost of that building that much at all. So I think the key has been to get the message out much earlier uh, and to include health as a priority up front.
0: How do we take that reflective pause to ask, we're trying to design something new. Do we have the right people at the table? Do we have all the right perspectives? What voices are we missing? How do we like embed that in our activities? Yeah, so I think more interdisciplinary
1: work for sure. I'm very fortunate that my mentors at the University of Michigan love that I work outside of the university and spend time with non-clinicians to try to break down some of these silos and overlap more. From a more pragmatic side, part of why healthcare and health insurers are spending more time in the built environment and understanding it is because there's a real payment incentive. Now that we're moving to these population health metrics, Once you realize that people's day-to-day housing environment changes their overall health outcomes and you're financially on the hook for those overall health outcomes, all of a sudden you want to start planning for the built environment. One of the great benefits or transitions of the Affordable Care Act were these alternative payment models that have forced us to think much broader about who the stakeholders should be. And I think a beautiful part about architecture is if a client asks for something, the architects will figure it out. If every client at the beginning of a project says, not only do we want this office building, not only do we want these energy efficiency metrics, not only do we want X, Y, or Z, we also want this as much as reasonably possible to also be a healthy building, to somehow promote healthy habits and behaviors for the people who occupy that space. If a client asks for that, every architecture firm will figure out one or two people to put at the table up front. If the clients don't ask for it, it'll fall off. So I'm optimistic that that'll become a competitive advantage for architecture firms. Um, and that clients will more and more understand that as a priority and start to demand it.
0: Right now there can be a competitive advantage for architects that are LEED certified. So we come at the green revolution, mm-hmm. climate change. Will there be a similar future where there can be a certification for a healthy architecture? So it- exist actually, which really? is exciting. So
1: there's multiple standards now. There's the well standard, there's the FitWell standard. FitWell comes out of the CDC and the Center for Active Design from New York City. They've essentially come up with scoring systems to say, how much does your building support healthy behaviors and habits? It's still in its early forms, it's maturing through every iteration and getting better, but it started to give both architects, real estate developers and clients a framework and a vocabulary to start to think about these ideas. It still needs a lot of work. It still needs a whole new workforce of people who are gonna train in architecture and design, who are gonna train maybe some in public health, train rigorously in health services research and econometrics and figure out how do we measure all this stuff? I think the state we're in now, conceptually a lot of people would agree, you know what, having access to healthy food is probably a good idea, and that if you're in a building where there's access to healthier food, you are associated with probably living a healthier life. But how do you start to more rigorously evaluate that, test some more innovative
0: design ideas, and really move that forward? We need a whole new workforce to do that. Are there any resources that you'd recommend for our listeners to review if they're interested in the intersection of architecture and medicine? Sure. We have started to publish more in that space and trying to
1: overlap that world more. We'll have a large paper out this fall called Health and All Design that I'll certainly tweet out and share with you once it's ready. My website, surgeryredesign.com, will start to have some of that work as well. The American Institute of Architects has a design and health group that has started to collate and put together a lot of these ideas. I want to say it's the Urban Land Institute has started to put together a lot of this work. The Welcome Trust in the UK I started a new portfolio that's dedicated to this topic as well. There are some resources now, but in the next couple of years, there'll be a lot more.
0: Is there any last call to action that you'd like to leave for our listeners for something that they might be able to do next week?
1: I would say two things. I think for listeners, you know, podcasts. A lot of us listen to it on our walk home or walk to work, and just think about all the spaces you occupied during that day, all the things you walked by, all the people you passed, and think of all those spaces. Could any single one thing be designed differently to promote health as a priority? And it turns out if you do that, even for just a day, it actually gets pretty overwhelming because you realize there are dozens of things, maybe hundreds, that you'll encounter the way spaces could be used differently, the way that spaces could facilitate design better, the way that social communities could be better integrated. So I would say that is one. And I would say two, I know you have a large healthcare following on this podcast. I think we should be a little broader and how we mentor our next generation of students and young professionals i think our previous tradition had been you know we need the super super sub specialist who's really good at one or maybe two things and that's good i think we still need people to do that but we also need a different kind of mentee who's willing to work in different areas willing to try to integrate ideas that hadn't been done before and i'll just say from experience the The only reason I had the confidence to try to merge different fields together was some really strong mentors like Justin Dimmick, who not only encouraged it but protected space for me to do that and then celebrated it when it worked. So I would say that the mentors have a huge responsibility to encourage their mentees to be more creative.
0: Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us today. It's been really enlightening and inspiring, and I have to say I'm very excited to explore further the intersection of architecture and medicine. And for our listeners, please follow us on Twitter. You can reach Andrew Ibrahim at Andrew M. Ibrahim and myself at Reed Omery. And if you have any ideas for how you think we might be able to improve health through architecture, please share them with us on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Please stay tuned for our next episode of Innovation Activist next month.